You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Maybe seated. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Ryan. Today, we begin our short sermon series for the next three weeks, Lord willing, on God, government, and the gospel, and why would we do a sermon series on God, government, and the gospel leading up to what is now the next most important election, (laughs) you know, since the last four years, right? This is about having a biblical perspective of what God says about his authority and the authority that he places in front of us. This is also about just getting our hearts right. Um, I don't need to tell you this, but these can be divisive times, and uh, we want to, if you choose to vote, vote with, um, with a biblical worldview and with a conscience that is willing to cast a vote, potentially. Um, so the sermon series is for all of us. And I would imagine if we polled people in different various political positions, people will fall down in different um, perspectives. So this sermon series is just as much for me, I think, as it is for you, because we want to know what God says about these matters. So this week we will be in Romans 13, which we'll hear in a moment. Next week we'll be looking at Daniel. Um, In Daniel we see of an individual who... who, uh, was willing to do something to pray to God when he was told not to. We're going to talk about that. And then we'll get into 1 Peter 2, where Peter's really clear about the role of government in addition to what does that mean for the church. So that's kind of where we're headed. just want to lay that out there for you. As many of you know, as you all know, um, Rob is an elder in training here at Redemption Hill Church. I'll explain more about that next week at our family meeting as I talk more about our polity and how that is going to grow He's also a new community group leader, which began today. Woo, yeah, we've got a woo. This is good. This, I know it's a Presbyterian church. You're allowed to woo, though. Promise. Promise. Um, but he's also, you know, more than that, he's a disciple of Jesus Christ. The man doesn't need a title. He follows Jesus. And that's what I appreciate about Rob. He's a humble man. And the day I met him, I realized this is a man that I can learn from. And uh, I want you to learn from him as well. So, Rob, I want to invite you up to open God's word and preach to us from God's word. That might have been the trickiest part right there, getting from the mask to non. I hate introductions like that. Thank you for your kindness, but it's like it creates an expectation (laughs) that I'm way below. But I thank you for your, your confidence and the opportunity to do this. And to be really honest with you, and now we're going to wait just a second before we even go there because more than anything, I want to pray again right now before we get started. 
God, today, I pray that you would use the truth of your word to impact our hearts, to point us to you, to cause us to draw closer to you. Um, God, to strengthen us as we live for you day by day in this world, uh, to help us perhaps understand a bit more of what you desire of us. I do thank you for your word, for your faithfulness, for your truth, that in this fickle world, it is stable. Um, I ask that you'd calm my heart so that I can focus my thoughts on the truth that, that you've been allowing me to interact with, that it might be a blessing to all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of months ago, Sean said, how would you feel about preaching on Romans 13? I said, uh. And to be honest, as we start this series on God, government, and the gospel, I was struggling because, as you've heard several times already today, our current political climate is so polarized and volatile, I wasn't sure I wanted to address this. I'm a peace seeker. And... This is anything but peaceful times. And then there was the whole Romans thing. I mean, anybody who, who has to communicate the truth of the word of God when they hear Romans trembles. It's a big deal. I'm thinking, who am I to tackle this? Romans is for the big boys, they, not me. And then the knowledge that this text has been used to support all sorts of things including both sides of our American Revolution and the Civil War. Uh, the, the list of that goes on and on, but as I started digging in, God began to encourage my heart. So today I want to look at three things, three specific contexts that I believe are necessary to make this passage make sense. Uh, first, we're going to look at the doctrinal context of verses 1 to 7. Then we're going to consider the historical context, and then finally, we're going to look at the, the biblical, the extended textual context that Romans 13, 1 to 7 is part of. Uh, I'd like to read verses 1 to 7 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. As I started working through this passage, I discovered it's pretty clear from the text what we're called to do, and actually... The text is pretty straight ahead. Um, we start out in verse 1 with every soul, and it really means everyone, just like it says. But Romans is written to believers, so here it specifically refers to all believers. And in this context, uh, he's talking about the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. 
What we see here is Paul already applying the concept of one body in Christ that he presented earlier in chapter 12 in verses 4 and 5. In fact, would you look back there with me for just a second, please? Paul tells us, starting in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 13, we see Paul talking, and I'm going to get myself there because I will misquote it. Paul says, just after again, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The importance of that's going to come up a little later as we look at the historical context. But Paul's calling these believers, all of them, to be subject, which is the next thing to the law. And he's talking about submission, a word that we don't like much in our culture. Willfully choosing to place ourselves under another. We're familiar with this idea from Ephesians 5, where the wives are called to submit to their husbands, uses the same word. And just prior to that, where we as believers in the church are called to submit to one another, placing ourselves under each other. This idea might have been a little bit easier to apply for the Roman Christians than it would be for the Jewish Christians, and that will come up in the historical context as well. Uh, in some translations, the governing authorities are called higher powers. That term higher powers talks about two things, the concept or principle of government as well as about specific governments and officials. Paul says very clearly that God establishes governments. This is a two-part thought. The first is this. God established the concept, the principle of government. It's not man-made. It's not random. It comes from God. And within that principle or the concept of government, he also establishes and allows specific governments and leaders. So that's really Paul's first point here. God establishes governments in both concept and practice, and all believers are called to obey those authorities, which is kind of what we just read. That's where at least I start to get a little bit anxious because that idea of submission, I mean, I know what governments are like. This could get really problematic. Verse 2 doesn't help because when we get to verse 2, as Paul says, resisting, he's talking about opposing those governments and he talks about God appointing them, that God has arranged and instituted them, and that judgment comes upon those who disobey the government. And in the King James, it's really strong. That word judgment is rendered damnation. And so we're thinking, wait, if I don't obey the government, if I don't follow their rules all the way through, 
I run the risk of going to hell? That's where our minds go, but I don't think that's where we're going here because that idea of judgment is criminal judgment, condemnation that comes from breaking rules. It doesn't necessarily mean eternal salvation from God. So we can take a bit of a deep breath there. But that does bring us to Paul's second point. Opposition to authorities and governments is opposition to God and his authority. He's called us to submit as a means of displaying our obedience and faithfulness to him. So for some of us, unfortunately, anarchy is not an option for believers. God came up with the government thing. We can't just chuck it. It's there. Verses 1 and 2, taken just by themselves, I think, are where we get into some of the cans of worms that we've been talking about already. Because if you leave those, it sounds like, I don't have a choice but blind obedience to rules and laws. But I don't think that that's what Paul has in mind. I mean, it's like, I'm sure we could look at this and say, do you mean if I question the government, I'll go to hell? But what about this? And you're probably already running lists, right? Yeah. We each have our list, and we're not even done with the doctrinal context yet to make this make sense. So we really do need the rest of the story, which takes us to verse 3. Paul goes on to tell us that God established government to restrain evil. And I know that seems funny, because often when we think about the governments that exist in the world, we think about the evil that they do forget the benefit that they provide to us. But God knew what our hearts would be like. He knew that there needed to be some sort of a structure to deal with the evil right here and now, not just the eternal punishment that's going to come upon sinful man. So he says, if you don't want to be afraid of governing officials, the police, the IRS, etc., just do what's right. Nobody harasses you when you obey the law. Right? When was the last time you got stopped for doing the right thing? And I know that does happen. Every, there are examples of that. But the reality is, if you're driving along and you see a police car, what's your first response? You startle, right? And you look at your speedometer, right? And there's this instant reaction of your right foot even if you're driving 10 under, we don't need to be afraid of the authorities if we're doing the right things, which is what Paul was pointing out to these believers. They had more reason, as we'll see soon, than we do to be concerned. That freedom from harassment is part of the praise, I believe, that Paul mentions in verse 3. And so now he goes on to tell us, if you don't want to be afraid, do the right thing. But then he looks at these governing officials and calls them, in verse 4, God's ministers. And the word minister there is deacon. Just like church deacons, they're put in place to serve us. And specifically, in this sense, to serve and act as the avengers or revengers on behalf of the citizens. Their job primarily is to punish evildoers and provide safety for the citizens of their government. 
That goes back, if you think about it, to Romans chapter 12, verse 19. And I'd like to go there for just a second. Because Paul tells us, just before this, that we are never to avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. Because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And here he's telling us that these authorities are put in place to bring about those vengeances for the wrongs that are committed. He's put them there on our behalf. So I'm grateful to know that vengeance is God's domain, not mine. I'd mess it up every time, and I probably have messed it up every time I've tried. And we still haven't hit the title, What's Love Got to Do With It?, and seen anything about love yet, right? Well, verse 5 gives us two clear reasons to be subject to the, the authorities. The first one is very simply to avoid wrath, the penalties that are assigned to specific crimes. And we just talked about that. If you don't speed, you don't get a ticket. If you don't punch somebody in the face or steal, you don't go to jail or prison. It's pretty straight ahead for us. The second reason that we should obey them is, Paul tells us, for conscience. We're followers of Christ, the, etern the eternal God. He's established the authorities, and our conscience would be violated if we were doing something that goes contrary to what God has asked of us. And we would deal with the guilt of that response. Those reasons, avoiding wrath and keeping a clear conscience before God, are why we're called to the actions that Paul shows us in verses 6 and 7. To avoid wrath, for the sake of conscience, you're also to pay taxes. Pay taxes, don't try to avoid custom fees, honor and respect the authorities that God has established. Well, that seems pretty simple and generally possible to accomplish under a governmental structure. God's sovereignty is here in this passage. And in a lot of ways, if we look at this, it could seem very deterministic, very harsh even. But with that, if we look at just the first two verses, it's easy to see how those get manipulated as they're pulled into isolation by themselves. Because it seems like, seems like God's saying, unquestionable, unswerving allegiance to a governmental structure regardless of what it is and who's in control, which isn't the point at all. And so I think that takes us to the historical context, which helps those first two verses make more sense. When Romans was written in 57 AD, we need to remember it's only about 25 years after Christ's death. 
And it's only about 10 years since the gospel has come to the Gentiles. That's not a long time. We've been in Iowa almost 10 years as a reference point for me as I look at that. Christians were still considered part of Judaism by the Roman authorities. And Jesus was seen by them pretty much as another Jewish rebel whose threat ended with his death, as many other rebels had. We know differently. The Jews resented Roman occupation and rule. The Lord God had given them the promised land, and they felt that the Romans had no right to occupy their land or to tax them. Most of them complied, but some, like the Zealot Party, which, interestingly, was found mostly in Galilee, where Jesus is from, had deep animosity towards the Roman government, and they planned and executed revolts against the Romans. The Jews were opposed to the Roman concept of multiple deities, too, including the deification of the emperor. Worshiping the emperor was blasphemy to them. Only God was to be obeyed, and only God was to be worshipped. It didn't help that some of the emperors, like Caligula and Nero, actually did expect to be worshipped like gods. Many of the others did not. While the Jews felt that way, most of the Roman governmental officials really didn't care whether or not you worshipped Caesar. They only cared about the concept of allegiance to the state. Don't revolt. We don't want to have to quell those revolts and put them down. And Pay your taxes. We need that to support the roads and the commerce systems that you're benefiting from. But with that, the response of the Jews, the Roman government viewed the Jews as a constant threat. During this period of unrest, Caligula decided to place his statue in the temple in Jerusalem. Didn't go well. It caused a serious uprising, and from that uprising came repression of the Jews by the Roman government. Part of the consequence of that repression was that in 49 AD, Claudius, the emperor, expelled the Jews from Rome. Remember, this is not long after the Gentiles have become believers, and now the Jewish believers are being removed from that, Context that Paul was talking about of the Jews and Gentiles being one in Christ, being pulled apart. So we've got a problem happening here. And this leaves just the Gentile believers in Rome again. So now we have this dynamic of a, a reprieve. No, sorry. In 54, so six years later, five years later, Nero becomes the emperor, and he doesn't start out crazy. He gets there pretty fast, but this is a time of relative peace. And the Jews are able to come back to Rome, and this is where we find ourselves in Romans 13. So we have the Jews coming back, the Gentiles having been there. There's still this tension going on. There's still this dynamic, and they're going to figure out how to function together as one church, one body in Christ. And so we have this dynamic going on. These Jewish believers, who some of whom might have had some very strong nationalistic ideals still, coming back to Rome, 
trying to unite with the Gentile believers to see the church grow. One of the things that's important in this is how are we going to act to make that most possible to happen? So let's go back to Romans 13, verses 1 and 2 especially. In light of this context of the two groups of believers becoming one, living in Rome together, demonstrating the reality of what the church is. This is the RWL translation. That's me. Sorry, I just stole my initials. Let all of you believers, Jew and Gentile, willingly submit yourself to this Roman government. See how that's going to hit the Jews? God has placed them here as a protection. Rebelling against them will only bring about judgment on all of us as believers. And that will hinder the gospel. So I believe God used Paul's understanding of these tensions in history of the Roman and Jewish cultures and governments to inform this text. But I also believe that there's another layer that I think will make, especially verses 1 and 2, even more clear. The thought that Paul's expressing here in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, really begins clear back in chapter 12, verse 9, and it runs through verse 10 of chapter 13, maybe even the end of the chapter. There are a couple of clues in the text that that make me say this. In chapter 12, verse 19, we see a discussion about vengeance beginning, and it continues on or is restated again in chapter 13, verse 4. The first two verses of chapter 13 are part of that thought within that context of vengeance belonging to God and the fact that God has placed systems in place to accomplish that purpose. It's not our job, it's his job. And finally, we get to what love's got to do with it because Romans 12, 9 begins with this statement. Let love be genuine. No hypocrisy. And chapter 13, verse 10, ends with, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we see love creating the bookends to this entire section of which chapter 13, verses 1 to 7 is a part. If you would please come back with me to Romans chapter 12. Because this section, starting after verse 9, has this long list of what genuine love should look like. And I believe with the beginning part of chapter 13 included included in that vengeance discussion and the bigger application of the love discussion, I see Paul addressing this, being subject to the governing authorities, as part of the outworking of genuine love. So let's look at this list. Paul takes some time to expand a couple of those things on how we should act toward our enemies at the end of chapter 12 
and as we just read in 13, how we should respond to governments. But they're not separate ideas. They're part of this visible display. So here's that love list in chapter 12. Hate things that are evil. Cling to things that are good. Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love. Philadelphia, which is humorous to me. In honor, prefer one another or show deference to. Think more highly of others than yourself is what he's saying. Don't be slothful in business, but fervently serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Persevere in prayer. Distribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Well, there's a direct application for those believers in Rome. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay evil with evil. Be careful to do what is right or above reproach in everyone's sight. If possible, live peaceably with all. Don't seek or take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance belongs to God. He will repay. This is where Paul does one of his expansions. Instead of repaying vengeance, feed your enemy. Give him something to drink. Bless them. That, that picture of burning coals, as a young believer, I misunderstood that to mean that these coals are hot and heat and you're just heaping this heat on your enemy's head to make them feel absolutely guilty about how awful they've been to you. But the reality is, fire is one of the life-sustaining forces. Without fire, you can't fix food. Without fire, you can't stay warm. You run the risk of dying because of exposure without it. And so you're dealing with your enemy, and if you're going to feed him and you're going to give him something to drink, let's just don't do this a little way. Let's continue to help sustain their life by giving them the fire that allows them to cook and stay warm and survive. And don't just give them a couple of coals. Keep it on. Bless them. Bless your enemies. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then we get to where we are in, verse thir in chapter 13. Be subject to the authorities. Pay your taxes and custom revenues. It was interesting because Matthew Henry touched on that in, in his commentary the, the practice of smuggling came about because British subjects didn't want to pay import taxes. So they began smuggling goods to get around that whole system. Paul's saying here, just pay them. It makes it better for everyone. And finally, to respect and honor the authorities that God has established. That's what love looks like. It's not all of what love look, looks like, but it's a pretty good starting point. I think a list of 24 things is enough for now, right? And so, for me as a believer, if I want to display true Christ-like love, this is what it should look like. It's, it's pretty clear. And so, my obedience to authorities is a display of my submission to God 
And it's also evidence of true Christ-like love. So when I apply the doctrinal, historic, and textual context to Romans 13, 1 to 7, I can see that God is calling me to willingly, but not blindly, obey the government structures and rulers that he has put in place as a tangible demonstration of Christian love. The goal of this love and obedience is to minimize hindrances to the gospel and to allow us as believers the maximum amount of freedom to minister. Think about that early church in Rome. The Jews were suspicious. No, no, no. The Romans were suspicious of these Jews coming in with this teaching about Jesus who they'd put to death because he was subversive. And now they're seeing that these Jews are having an impact on some of their fellow Roman citizens. And they're wondering what's going to happen. And they're already suspicious because they know that the Jews like to rebel against Roman authority. And they're going to create problems. And there's this tension. And Paul's going, look, we want the world to know about Christ. We can simplify that and minimize the problems we're going to face by following the governmental authorities, as long as they're not asking us to contradict God's laws. And we've seen that. We saw Peter and John preaching the gospel, right? In the gospels. And they were arrested and thrown in prison. And God sends an angel and gets them out. And what do they do? They go back and preach. And the the authorities say, go get them out of the prison. And they're told, we can't, they're gone. Where are they? They're preaching again. So they go out and they question them. What are you doing? We told you not to do this. It was against the law. And they said, we have to obey God rather than man. The authorities talked about it, and Gamaliel was very wise in this when he said, wait, we're going to wait and see what happens. We've seen these revolts happen before. God's not God. They've come to an end. We're going to see what this one does. If it's of God, we don't want to be messing with it because then we're fighting our God. If it falls apart, we'll know it wasn't real. But what did those authorities do? Well, they beat them. (laughs) They were obedient to God, knowing that there was going to be a consequence from the governmental authorities. We have to keep that in mind too, I think. There come times when we cannot comply with what the government asks. We have to stand on God's word when that happens. But we also have to realize that those authorities that God established may have consequences with that. It could cost us something at some point in our culture, and we have to be prepared for that, I believe. Um, Layla was reading an article recently about a Chinese Christian pastor. And he told his wife to be prepared for him being taken to prison. He knew that was the governmental consequence for him obeying the Chinese, disobeying the Chinese government. But he also knew that he had to obey God and proclaim the truth of God's word. And so if prison was the consequence of that, he was prepared to face that. That may happen for us. So is there room in Romans 13, 1 to 7 for civil disobedience? Yes. If those laws violate God's word, yes. Do we blindly go along with our governments and leaders? Certainly not. 
nothing about blindly doing that in this passage. When should I disobey or may I disobey? When the laws and the leaders clearly violate biblical mandates and principles. For an example, or a couple of examples, um, as we look at abortion, we see that as a taking of a human life. Is it okay to protest that and oppose those laws and seek to see them overturned? I believe so. Is it right to mock and ridicule those who are there? No. Is it appropriate to kill a doctor who's engaged in that? Absolutely not. In World War II, the Germans who hid the Jews were disobeying the law. But they knew there was a higher law that they had to follow, a law of, again, preserving human life that God had established. There was a plot by Christian leaders to assassinate Hitler. I think that gets a little dicier because then we are seeking to take someone's life. Now, is it possible that there were governmental structures that God could put in place that would allow that to happen, that the people could overthrow Hitler, imprison him, try him, all of those things? Maybe. Was it that desperate? Possibly, but you see where that starts to become me taking vengeance, not God, and superseding even the truths of Scripture. So what I do as a believer has to fall within the guidelines of Scripture too, I believe. Submit to the government as a testimony of our love for God, as an opportunity to show the world that there's something different positively different about Christians so that the gospel can go forth. We live in a time right now where people need hope. They want to see something different and we have that thing that's different in Jesus Christ and our salvation. I just want to encourage us to, as we look at the elections, it's not the governmental structure. God hasn't specified that. In fact, I'm pretty sure if we look back when Paul was writing those things, they'd be absolutely amazed at the input we're able to have into our governmental structure right now. We have an opportunity to be a blessing and to see the gospel continue to go forth. I just pray that we can make use of these opportunities. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.